0: I cannot tell you how excited I am about our guest today, Leah Savas, who writes uh, with World News Group on the issue of abortion. If you go online, just journalistic writing, I really appreciate journalistic writing. I went to journalism school when I was at university, and there is a different style of writing when you're talking about a journalistic writing. And the book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, today, the, the story of abortion in America right here. She co-wrote with Marvin Olasky. The whole book is written in a very snappy, journalistic style, which I really enjoyed. Uh, We've been having uh, uh, an effort to get her on because I've been excited about this since the moment that book came through Amazon. Immediately, one of the first things I did when starting this new series of podcasts was contact her to try to get her on. Leah Savas, welcome to the Human Things Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, no, the pleasure is all ours. Now Now, you are welcomed into a segment that we call the three things. Uh, so what it is, is that you get the opportunity to dictate this conversation, tell the audience the three things that are most important or that your mo- whatever you want to communicate. It's all about you. And I'm going <laughs> to talk back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interact with you. But, but I'm interested in bringing guests on that have some level of expertise or information that, that I don't have, the audience doesn't have, and they can bring a different perspective to things. I, I I do love, by the way, your writing. I have spent in preparation for Thanks. this reading your writing online. I'm a huge fan already. Um, I'm, so that's another exciting part as well because I have a new resource <laughs> to go and to read these sorts of things. So let's turn it over to you. You're you are now running three things.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. So I I was thinking about this earlier. What three things did I want to mention? Um. The first one that comes to my mind is just um what shocked me about reading some of this research in this book and 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 my co-author Marvin Alasky he's a historian he did a lot of the um stuff that's farther back in time in America so um reading some of his research I was so surprised to learn that doctors as early as the 1830s said that life begins at conception I was so shocked that you know that that I did not expect that. Um, And reading what they had to say about just this, how specific they were about, no, like we believe that we are treating a second patient when we, when a pregnant woman comes to us. And that's from, um, I think it was 1839 was when this Dr. Hugh Hodge gave a lecture asserting those things and that blew me out of the water so that was one thing that really i i wanted to talk about for sure so yeah and we and yeah
0: working in my side of things is more has been historically over the last 10 years more the apologetic side of things and so those arguments and it is it is interesting when i first became aware of that was I actually through the works of people like marvin alasky and joseph delapina and dispelling the myths of abortion history some of clark for science stuff when you read some of those things and you find out the the level of argument about abortion that was being had in the early mid 19th century and through all the way up into the early 20th century, it is surprising, right? I mean, these people weren't just, it wasn't a religious argument. These were doctors saying, and, and they believed, and this was, I think this is one of the more depressing I want to, I want to go back and talk a little bit about what your book is uh, because I mentioned it on the last episode. Actually, I talked about your book last week as well. It's, When we say street-level look at the issue of abortion, you guys have have gathered primary resources, sermons, letters, uh, newspaper articles, anything that where the past communicates for itself what people were talking about and how they were talking about during those times. And then you've collected them in a work that goes from common law all the way through to people that I work with today, actually. And that was fun to see them in the later chapters. Uh, And so... In this, what you're talking, we go back in the mid-19th century, the level of sophistication these doctors were operating at is surprising. I agree.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and even some of the doctors who supported abortion, they still understood that it it was a human being, a live person that was being killed in abortion. They just saw it as, oh, well, you know, it's better for the woman. So it's kind of similar to the arguments we see today. But I think the thing that really got to me was – I mean, we've heard all these years, especially since Roe v. Wade, that there's no consensus about when life begins. And that's an argument that we hear today. But as we say in the book, well, maybe there wasn't a consensus among historians or maybe among uh, like legal scholars, but there was a consensus among doctors. And I think that's the group we should be paying the most attention to anyway, when it comes to this question, because they're they're in the science, they, they see the anatomy of the unborn child and they've seen it longer than maybe the everyday person has, just because, um, you know, ultrasound technology has only been around for a few decades. So yeah, just recognizing the level of knowledge that they had on this um, was very surprising. And I think also something that I think would, be good for a lot of people to know, even if you agree that abortion is okay, you should at least know that there is a, a general understanding among physicians, even physicians in the 1800s, that life begins at conception. So
0: and I think most, was, people, yeah. most people don't think, I guess, because we're so captive by our period that we live in. Right. I think most people don't realize the massive transformation that the medical industry went through during the 19th century, right? It really was moving away from a type of medicine that would be completely foreign to us today and the birth of modern medicine, modern medical scientific Mm -hmm. practices. And that happens during that period. So even that's what I think is even more interesting because when we say doctors in the 1830s and moving forward after that, we're well aware of when life began and we're starting to chart that, that the development of life early on, and understand the process of growing life, we are saying the moment medical science really enters the picture, the understanding of when life begins changes. Right? It was informed by philosophy before, and a different way of understanding. And that's why you had like you know, let's go back to the death of George Washington. Right? I mean, why does he die? It's not because he gets sick. It's because probably because when he got sick, sick we bled him. Because he had too much blood. That was that was like the you have too much blood. That's why you're flush and hot. We've got to get that oh, blood man. out of you. Uh, and that was that yes. was science before. So as as yeah. new science comes in, you see a change. Another thing, building on what you just said, that I want to hear your if you have a comment on, because you said even the doctors who thought abortion was okay knew they were destroying a life. What's interesting in your when the book here is that you highlight the idea that it was worldview differences that made them have a different view of abortion. It, it wasn't that they didn't understand what life was; it's that they just had a different understanding of what made life important, what made life valuable. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that actually leads into. One of the other my second thing that I wanted to touch on my second of three things um, was just the how how the issue of abortion and someone's view on abortion is so closely tied to what they believe about God and what they yeah. believe about the scriptures. So we see in like the early in the very earliest cases of abortion in America. So in the early chapters of the book, um, when. The first few cases that we we talk about in the book are of men forcing abortifacient like herbs on women who they impregnated and, you know, they don't want them to have a baby. So they force these drugs on these women and they have abortions and the way their community responds is very informed not by the science because they didn't really know much about the science but rather by what scripture has to say about abortion so they you know like this one woman susan warren who was one of those victims of a forced abortion she um later said that you know it was a great sin for me to get pregnant outside of wedlock but it's an even greater sin for you know, this abortion to happen, this child to die. Um, so she recognized it as a sin. The community recognized it as a sin. And that's why they put um, Captain Mitchell, who was the man that forced the abortion on her, on trial for murder. You know, this, so, okay. You know this is Mm -hmm. this is a long time before this science that we see today you know the ultrasound technology it's even um long before you know i mentioned dr hugh hodge and he was in the 1830s giving these lectures on abortion and how the unborn child is an individual a second patient so this is long before even that but they still recognized it as murder and that's because they had this understanding of what the Bible had to say and how scripture treats unborn life and just the issue of um, life in general. So, yeah, that was another thing I, I that I thought was really important was the whole worldview aspect and um, just a view of scripture, a view of God and how that informs your approach. So later at the 1850s, we, we see this spiritism movement yes. coming to the forefront. And with that, we also see just overt support for abortion because yep. they they don't accept scripture as a standard for truth. They they don't care what God has to say. So their their standard is, you know, what you believe, what you feel, what you think is best for yourself, which is what we hear today. And, you know, this is in the 1850s. We have these people um, supporting abortion for a very worldview reason, even as doctors are talking about um, individuals who are unborn, you know, as being a second patient when they see a pregnant woman. So, yeah, no, exactly what you were saying. It's very much of a worldview issue. Not to say that someone who's atheist can't also be you know against abortion because we definitely see that but as when you look at a culture as a whole you can see how these views of scripture um very much inform how we approach issue issues like that which is why today you know we see a very unchurched culture uh, a culture that's not interested in what scripture has to say and a lot of support for abortion, um, you know, people shouting their abortions. And I think, you know, it kind of goes hand to ha- hand, in hand, and you can kind of see that trace throughout the book, how, you know, we, yeah. we might have an increased understanding of the science, but we're getting a decreased understanding of what scripture has to say. And yeah. So it, yeah, it's just very interesting kind of what and, you were talking about. And
0: responsibilities and duties to each other. Right. I mean, I think it was when I first yeah. read abortion rights, a lot, Marvin Lasky's prior book. Uh, yeah. It was the first time I became aware, and he mentions it again in this book, but you guys cover it in this book, the idea of shotgun weddings as we understood them from our perspective, were a different thing back then, and, sure. and that there was a there was a sense of if we i remember he taught talk, him talking about originally saying there was a sense for women in which this was just a way to advance the relationship right I mean in these smaller communities, and that's something that I always. Again, when we try to understand the past through today, we always have these biases by which we're trying to understand the things that we're evaluating. And and go, let's go to something different for a second. Let's take a rabbit trail because we can do that. We're allowed okay. to, right? All right. So, um, talking about Christmas, right? Over Christmas, I wrote a brief article and put it on the website about understanding the size of Bethlehem. Right? You know, my go church, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. I think our 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 sanctuary holds like over a little over two thousand people. It's like well, the, the whole town of Bethlehem was less than half that size or somewhere around half that size, mm. as far as the population, mm. this was a okay. small, small community. And when you go back to these communities prior to the rise of the, the urbanization of, of the United States and the growth of these big cities, when you're talking about sh- what we would call shotgun weddings back then, what you're talking about are these very small communities, no secrets. Yeah. And, and, oh, then, totally. it, and so it, the, the idea of how, like you talked about how the community interacted with an unplanned pregnancy was different because yeah. there was no way to hide it. There, there was no mm-hmm. way to hide what had happened. It was coming out. And so there was a sense by which when he wrote about it originally, I thought was fascinating. Sometimes this was just the way relationships progressed, right? You mm-hmm. you want to have sex. All right. When we're going to get married. That's the next thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And if you got pregnant, it was going to have to happen because the community would put pressure on men to do what was right in that situation. You now have responsibility yeah. duties and requirements to this community.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's actually um, an interesting—I uh, I can't remember if it was a law or more of a—I um, think it, yeah, I think it was a law. Um, but in in these early communities, there's this one um, oath um, or just kind of standard by which midwives would approach these cases yeah. of women who were pregnant outside of marriage, and basically the the procedure was. You know, if the, if they didn't know who the dad was, then they would ask the woman as she was going through labor, giving yes. birth, "Who's the dad?" And whoever she named in that moment was considered the father legally. Yeah, um, and I, and that, I, that I think that yeah yeah it's so interesting, and I think that just speaks to those what you were saying about the small communities. Um, obviously everyone knew each other if you know if if you well, yeah. can just name someone and yeah and just and say the idea oh that yeah labor was like
0: a was like a truth serum that's what cracks me <laughs> yeah. up it's like cuz you can't ask her before that cuz she might try to protect them but at that yeah. moment yeah. when and my wife you know we have three children and our first child we went through i think i don't know if i mentioned like bradley courses which is like natural birth on steroids it's like these the super serious natural birth people, right and and so you have to study all of these things and you learn about the psychological state that a woman goes through during labor, so that cracked me up when I was reading that because it is it's a traumatic thing that's happening to her at that moment yes. <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. she's going through labor and all the hormones are raging, her body is going through all of these th- these different and so at that moment to wait till she's in the the, the grasp of all that to say now who's the dad? <laughs> like going you know, to tell mm-hmm. us. Because there's a sense like there will be honesty at that moment. We're just we're, Yeah, we're, isn't that funny? Yeah. But I did. <laughs> yeah. I loved that part. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well I mean it just shows that they had these um kind of ways in these communities in early America to make sure that no child went yeah. without, you know, support and no child was and no no mother even went without support when she was pregnant outside of marriage, had no husband. So they they didn't see abortion as the go to solution. They saw they found these other other ways to help in these situations. But I mean, obviously, since they had those smaller communities, in some ways, it was easier to do that now, now with just, you know, people being so spread out. And like, for instance, I don't know a lot of my neighbors. You know yeah. and there are people that live right on my street so it's i think just that situation today i mean we're obviously in a different reality than these early americans were but because they had those tight tight-knit communities they just had these solutions yeah, the world that made yeah yeah and, and i mean they were intentional about that too so yep. i think I think as we see these spread, um, the spread throughout this book into you know people going into big cities and like women being on their own, um, young men being on their own, finding you know, just people not having support around them, we do see the rise of these groups, these Christians often starting these organizations to try to help women in difficult situations, yeah. trying to encourage men um, to make wise decisions too. So and I think that's a pattern that we still see today with like crisis pregnancy centers and other organizations like maternity homes that are there to kind of be that community, that that tight knit community for those people that are kind of lost in maybe a big city or even a small town, but maybe don't know anyone. Yeah. So yeah, so that's definitely a pattern that's continued as well. Um, just how we have that desire as believers to form these communities to offer support. Um, and I, I, think that's, um, that's really exciting to see that we have a long history of that in our country too.
0: And I, yeah, so. I agree. And as a Christian, I wasn't, you know, I, I, we don't know each other, but when I was in my early twenties, I was not a Christian, and I had a view of what Christianity was. And then since then I've spent a lot of time reading, you know, when you do this for a living and you write about this for a living as well, it, it, it can be a little, Dark, right? I mean, we're not talking about the happiest subject on earth. I'm not, I'm not spending a lot of time talking about the things that make people happy. And, and so you, you balance it out, right? Like the, like the, the darkness of the way people are capable of behaving. I will, I will own up to this. I love, by the way, I'll say, I love the book. I I wanted to write this book like seven years ago, but then I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because y'all's version is better than anything I would have done. Oh, Um, thanks. But, it, and I think there's so much value. A friend of mine and I were talking, a, a, a faculty member out of the college out in California and I were talking years ago when I was talking about writing a book like this. And he said, it's a wisdom book. He talked about it. He's like, when, when you write this kind of work, right? The, we do argument and then there's wisdom and history gives us wisdom. And so there's wisdom and understanding the human condition when you read about it. But I will own up to it. There are chapters when I'm reading about things that you guys are reporting in this history that you're sharing mm. that are hard to read, uh, yeah. because it, it mm-hmm. darkness is raining, and and it, there's no way to. It feels like we can't get a grasp on it, uh, but in every place you see this response, as you said, of Christian community rising up and trying their best to find some way to combat the evil in a community in Christ like way, and you see it reflect. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was done. I, you know, in communities, right? I mean, I'm I'm a I'm I'm a hardcore guy. Community first, in the sense that we should have the the uh, the principle of subsidiarity. You know, it, I, I think that the smallest, most local institutions are always the best to solve problems, and that we should only extend sure. beyond them when we when 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 it's necessary. And sometimes it is necessary. And there are things that you need larger, more more universal systems to help and build. But then there's things that the answer should be your neighbor and 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 your church mm-hmm. and those people. And so, and and one of the things I loved about Marvin Lasky wrote in in his other book, and then was recovered in this, is that there was no stigma for the child or the mom. If the man failed to live up to his responsibilities, the stigma was on him. But then Mm -hmm. you talk about a second ago, we move into the urbanization of America and we go into cities. It's not just the idea that you no longer have that kind of community anymore. There's also an element that you can hide your sin in a way that you couldn't before. You can hide your infidelity in a way that you couldn't before.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting too, to see even as, um, as these abortion, uh, doctors or abortionists pop up in these big cities, how they use power and money to try to hide what they're doing as well. So, you know, it's not just, were the people who, you know, maybe got pregnant outside of marriage, but also for um, for people like Madame Ristel, we write about her in the book. She was a big abortionist in New York City in the 1800s. And, you know, abortion was not legal, but she was doing it. Everyone knew that she was doing it. But as far as like enforcement of the laws, she was able to basically hide from the law by paying people off um you know she knew enough of the secrets of the city of people in in these communities to be like hey you know so i know this secret about you i know about you know xyz and you remember when you came to my place well i wouldn't want that to get out into the public so you better pay me some money you know so just kind of using those secrets for power for gaining money
0: what was yeah. the name of the abortionist in San Francisco as well that became Inez so? Inez Burns. There, that's right, Inez Burns. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So yep. yeah, you have these yes. these figures. Hmm. Yeah, and there, I think uh, Ruth Barnett, I believe was her name, was another abortionist who, um, she, she, her daughter was trying to join this sorority, and they wouldn't <laughs> let her because her mom was an abortionist and and Ruth Barnett was like, well, honey, you know, they're not going to let you join, but I'm going to buy you a dress every time I abort a baby of one of these sorority sisters and and her daughter is basically like I was the most um, well dressed woman on campus, you know, so even even that element of like seeing how rich and powerful these abortionists would get off of the death of unborn children amazing um, wasn't it yeah yeah crazy crazy an and i industry. think industry yeah mm-hmm. and and also seeing their lifestyles too yep. um there are some stories we have of you know the small town abortionist who was seen as kind of like a public servant mm-hmm. you know and i'm sure that these bigger abortionists like madame ristel and inez burns and ruth barnett you know i'm sure that it, i'm sure you If you saw abortion as a good thing, you could also see, oh, yeah, they're a public servant. But there's this image that they had of being like these people with the the big furs and all the jewelry, you know, driving (gasps) around town with with the nicest, you know, carriages and the nicest horses. And I think Inez Burns, I get them all kind of mixed up in my mind, but I think it was Inez Burns was the one who, um, actually had her little toes surgically removed so that she could wear high heels yes. more comfortably, you know? So like just yes. little details about that, you know, about their, their personalities. And you can kind of see,
0: like, wow, that what freaked it freaked me out when I yeah. read that. Yeah, because well, like, I've never wow, worn high heels. But that's a commitment <laughs> to high heels, man, I'm gonna have my totally. pinky toes removed. Um, yeah, she just well, wide it, feet. I don't know about that. That's I, don't, crazy. I don't know. I don't I, I will know. Say but yeah, even though when you mentioned, because y'all and, and I, I wish I had, had done a better job at memorizing names, but you talked about the small, t- I know who you're talking about in a couple of them, the, the, the smaller town abortionists. I mean, these are still people yeah. that performed tens of thousands of abortions during the course of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And the act of protecting them was actually driven much more by the finances of the town. Because you, you're, you're still not seeing a town that said, we're good with abortion. What you're seeing is a town that said, we like the abortion tourism that we're getting the dollars Mm -hmm. that are flowing in from people that visit this guy. Cause he's a great guy. He's been in our community. He's taken care of us, but he didn't do 50,000 abortions over his lifetime in our small town. What happened was Mm -hmm. all these people were coming in from other places. And so he was enjoying protection, not because everybody loved what he was doing, although they liked him based on the way way y'all wrote about him, but because the Mm -hmm. town profited from this. So there's still that element Mm -hmm. of profit, right? It's, it's, I, I kept yeah. looking, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, when I was reading your book, I kept looking for an abortionist that I felt okay about beyond the idea of what they were doing. And then every oh, one true. of them, there was just something in there that just undercut it, right? There was always something that is there, because yeah. it, it's it's a hard thing to do that mm-hmm. for a living. You, you mm-hmm. When you do that for a living, you, you know abortion differently than every other person. I mean, you just have mm-hmm. a, a, an experience with it, then that all the rest of us will never have. And, and I've, I've long held that from my experience of talking to them, that there's, they're morally strange people when I have conversations with them. Uh, there's, there's, yeah. what
1: well, I'm sorry, but it goes no, back yeah, to yeah, that the, anatomy issue, like the, the, the whole science behind it. Cause if you know, they're the ones that know the yeah. most about that unborn child from a scientific perspective or an anatomical perspective. So, you know, if they know this and yet they're still performing the abortion, like you were saying earlier, it has to do with that worldview disconnect. You know, they, they might know the science, but they, there's something that in their worldview that says that this is a good thing. And maybe, I mean, for a lot of them, maybe it really is like, Oh, I think, you know, I'm doing what is best for these women, which obviously they're not fearing the Lord. They're fearing something else more than God and his scripture. Um, but, also, there, you know, like you mentioned, the money aspect that is a a big part of the abortion industry. Someone's making money off of these deaths of these yeah. unborn children, and we can't discount that being a legit kind of motivator for you know people who perform the abortions. Yeah. So, and yeah, always have. Sure. That's
0: the thing that's fascinating is always have been making money. That these are people who are profiting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so did, did, we got two. What was your third?
1: Oh yeah. Well, so and it kind of actually goes with what you were just saying. My third thing was, um, just so, okay. When people were, you know, when I was first telling people, oh, I'm, you know, helping write this book about the history of abortion in America. I think their minds all automatically went to, you know, 1973, because that's yeah, Roe v. Wade. 50 years um,
0: ago.
1: Yeah. But then when I would say, and actually it starts in 1652, people are like, what? You know, 1652. Like, what was going on in 1652? And and actually, there there's there a light abortion even earlier earlier than that, but it's just not confirmed in the records from the 1620s. So, just telling people about you know how abortion has been lo- around in the country, you know, so much longer than you would assume, way before Roe v. Wade. I think that was another big thing. Um, and I think a lot of abortion advocates will say. Oh, yeah. Abortion's been around as long as women could get pregnant. And I think to some extent, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. Eve didn't get pregnant until after the fall. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously, she didn't abort Cain and Abel. As far as we know, we didn't, she didn't abort any children. But um, but still, you know, sin's been around as long yeah. as women were getting pregnant. And sin sin is really the the root behind abortion you know it's ultimately a heart issue ultimately a sin issue it's ultimately uh an issue of like murder so um so yeah they're right abortion has been around this long but it also is a reminder that you know we can't we can't just assume that because roe v wade has been overturned that the abortion issue is over in the country like it's been around long before roe v wade and it's going to continue Um, Abortion is going to continue as long as there is sin. Um, So that's why I think we need to be combating this issue from a spiritual level, you know, um, using the gospel to confront people about, you know, the reality of sin and the reality of the grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Um, It's great when we can talk about the science, but ultimately that is not gonna change someone's mind or heart. That maybe it will change their mind, but it will not change their heart. What will change their heart is the gospel. And we need to make sure we're applying the gospel and scripture to this issue, not avoiding it. So I think that was that was another big thing that really stood out to me.
0: Yeah. And before you came on and in another section I recorded for this podcast, I was discussing a an interview, this was from I think 2018, uh, it's Oxford Union panel discussing abortion. Uh, and one of the panelists talks about abortionists saying there's for most people as American abortionists that they say that they've heard that there are three exceptions for abortion that almost everybody has. It was life of the mother, rape and me. And and I think what you're saying sure. there is interesting about that, because I, I I fight on both fronts, obviously. I mean, for me, the, there is an element to where we have to disarm the arguments that are justifying things. And the only way sure. to, to take those on is through science and philosophy, more intellectually rigorous pursuits like that. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, what you find is I can strip away, and I, I warned a friend of mine about this years ago, and 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 um, like I, I've heard, just that they love abortion, they want it for mm-hmm. them. They they mm-hmm. on some part of their life they'll say I think it's bad, and I don't think everybody else should get it, and I think it's probably wrong, and I know it's a life that's being destroyed. You could hear this, but at the end of the day. I think why you see the the elections run the way they do and the polls run the way they do often is because people want to reserve it for them or or for Mm -hmm. theirs, for their people. So I think you're right in the sense that, uh, and Robert George says that a lot. He says they love, they, they love abortion. They love their abortions. They want their abortions. That's what they want. They want to be able to get their abortions. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a hard time understanding the world that you live in because you, and those early doctors Mm -hmm. we talked about, that you guys wrote about, you say in the book, y'all write that they believed if they could just help people to understand the development process that was going on, that people would not get abortions. And the end yeah. of result was they were wrong. Even mm-hmm. when people understood exactly what was going on, they go back to Robert George, they still want their abortions. And a friend of yeah. mine came to me after I talked to him about that, and he said, I was having a discussion with somebody and it was an intellectual discussion and I was using all the tools that we've talked about over the years to disarm the arguments that they're using. And he would never ever admit that he was wrong, that abortion should be restricted. And so finally I said, do you just want abortion? Is that it? You just want abortion to be there in case you need it. And he said, the guy looked at him and honestly said, yeah, that's it. And so there is Mm an element to what you're saying that at the end of the day, we're going to have to win people over, not just restrict. Now the restrictions important. Like the legal restriction is an important part of it. We also have to win the, them over to the truth, to yeah. morality, to, to seeing a world where they're not the center of it, to abandon a narcissistic mm-hmm. worldview and embrace something where there's some sacrificial nature, duties and responsibilities, obligations to other human beings that require them to limit their own pursuits in order to make room for others to flourish. And that's just not going to happen, I don't think, without God personally.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even Captain Mitchell, the man that forced Susan Warren to take an abortive patient on a poached egg in 1652, um, he was seen in the community as a blasphemer. Like he said publicly that he doesn't think that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are real. He just sees them as a man and a pigeon. Like that's on the record. Like his, we know what his view was of. Of god and it was linked to how he was treating this woman and how he was treating that unborn child of his um it's it's a closely linked um issue and just question that you know every human heart has to deal with like what do you say si- what do you think about what scripture has to say and how is that a affecting the decisions you make and the things that you support like abortion so yeah ultimately it is a hard issue and and something that we need to apply the gospel to but i think another thing just from my reporting and talking with women who have had abortions one of the things that i think makes the gospel issue so important for abortion is that it offers a solution to women who are struggling with that regret Mm -hmm. um you know some because so there's one woman I talked to, this isn't in the book, but I write about this in another article that I, I think has been a couple of years by now. Um, but I got this interview with this woman who's, she's like a grandma, um, grandma age. I can't remember her exact age, but she had grandchildren. Um, and she had only recently told her husband that she had had an abortion. Um, she had not told anyone for decades that she had had this abortion she had been in bible study she became a christian i think the way she told it was before she became a christian she didn't really have any problem with her decision to get an abortion but then once she learned what scripture has to say She just felt this immense weight and guilt. And she went through Bible studies for years and years and never realized until going through this, um, it was like a post-abortive Bible study, never realized until that post-abortive Bible study as a grandmother that Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid for the sin of the abortion, just Mm. like any other sin. She thought it was like its own category of thing. You know, she she Mm. didn't think that christ's sacrifice had paid for that as well so once she realized how the gospel applied to her specific experience um she just found so much freedom she told her family members about it she told her granddaughter about it she told me like you know a total stranger for an article about it so just seeing the freedom that she found in christ um when she was able to recognize how christ um saved her you know from the sinner for abortion and the punishment that comes for sin so much freedom and it's just really encouraging to hear stories like that but i'm sure that there are a lot of women in a in a similar boat to where she was who just don't see that connection because they're not used to talking about abortion as a sin so yeah i think yeah
0: and my friend scott klusendorf will be coming on in a couple weeks uh he He and I were. He's he's one that I think most succinctly said it when he said, "The failure of the church to address abortion is not failing to communicate to the people in the pews that abortion is wrong, or that the church believes that abortion is wrong, or the church condemns abortion. The failure to talk about it is blocking people from coming up the aisle to receive grace for their past abortions. Right? They're they're getting the message that they've done something wrong clearly." What they're not getting is that the, the that is forgivable and that Christ yeah. died and rose again to save us from all sins, including that one. Uh, and and so mm-hmm. by not talking about it, we're leaving people in prison to their past in the pews as opposed to being open and free and discussing it and, and, and saying that even as bad as this is and we condemn it, it is yet mm-hmm. another thing that you can be forgiven for if you just come and lay yeah. it down. And and that is mm-hmm. a powerful thing that, to be able to to know that the altar is open to you and that there is there is nothing that you've done that he can't restore you, right? Exactly. Uh, and so mm-hmm. now I will say this, yeah. um and, and going back to where you're saying that about uh you know for us that worldview grounding and in there, obviously we both know and have talked to and worked with atheists who 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 land on the idea that they have a high value of life and they just don't like the destruction mm-hmm. of life. I, I've, I've talked to them before, and I said we just have we're going to have to ground those in different places. I don't think you have great reasons, but but you do have a high value of human life as a great thing, yeah. and I work alongside you because of that. But I wanted to ask you something before we go. Something since you've given us the three things. Okay. I want what what was the the most hopeful thing the process of writing this book left? I already said you know for for me this work has a a side that's aware that's taxing and wearing that requires me to spiritually. And prayerfully look after my own virtue but what was the most hopeful aspect of it for you in writing this book
1: Hmm, most hopeful aspect oh man i mean in some ways that's hard because it is a really sad topic like some of the interviews that i did in um in working on the book like made me cry during the interviews Mm. you know just like in tears I think I was crying more than the woman I was interviewing, but she, this one woman that I, um, write about in one of the later chapters, she had an abortion herself. Um, and I guess, so I guess, yeah, her story is a good example of what I find to be the most hopeful, but she was saying how she just, she also struggled with the weight of this abortion that she had had years ago. And even when she had children later, she just felt like, you know, I have this little baby that's you know a born baby and she just kept having this feeling like you're gonna go kill that baby too because you killed your first baby you know yeah Yeah. and like hearing that i was like oh my goodness like that is so sad i can't like i can't imagine living with that um
0: that overwhelming dread that she felt like that she was going to kill another one of her children like intentionally directly kill her children
1: Yeah, like she was afraid to chop vegetables, you know, when her husband wasn't home because she this would just come to her mind. Not like she wanted to kill her child, but she knew what she had done and she knew that she was capable of killing a a child of hers. Mm. Um, But she said that, you know, just going through and and learning about Christ and and the gospel, that was a big source of freedom for her. From kind of those those feelings and those fears, so ultimately, I know I I was just talking about that, but I think that was probably the main source of hope for me in in working on these chapters and working on this book was just recognizing the gospel and how it applies to the situation. That's ultimately where the hope comes. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. No. We really we we, yeah, <laughs> we don't the have any other source of have. hope.
0: Yeah. Right, I mean that that is, I, and that's one of the things when you're on the road, or like when I go on the road, and I'll spend. I remember one time I spent a long time on the road, and I came home and I went to church, and I love my church. So I don't want to, this to sound insulting, but whatever we were talking about that day after spending weeks and weeks on the road, arguing with people who are trying to explain why it was okay to destroy other human life, like they they line up when I get done to go to Q and A to find is this a reason we can kill? Is this a reason we can kill? Is this a reason we can? Kill? And so you're just constantly talking about these urgent important issues. And, and you're seeing the the level of spiritual battle that's necessary in our culture to reclaim a yeah. life, a life affirming world. And then all of a sudden I got to church and I can remember the, the youth guy, not the youth guy, the, 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 the worship leader saying something like, maybe you had a bad week this week. Maybe you spilled coffee on your lap. Well, here you are at church and you know, Jesus is here to restore you. It's like your Jesus is really small right now, man. I, I yeah. need a bigger Jesus, yeah. right? I not that I don't think you spilling coffee in your lap could have disrupted your day. It can disrupt your sure. day. But what Jesus yeah. does is restore broken people and and mm-hmm. and on a level that is sometimes difficult for us to grasp. That's why that story is yeah. so great. I remember just my heart was broken when I was reading that story yeah uh, so mm-hmm. yeah the idea of God but God restores he, he just restores mm-hmm. uh, when we when yeah. we give it over to him
1: exactly yeah and it, it has been helpful just in my personal relationship with the Lord um, yeah. I've never had an abortion but I have sinned you know I'm yeah. just as much a sinner as anyone else out there and recognizing the the work that he does on our behalf on the cross the work that he did he accomplished um and that applies as well to my own sins you know um there's a and i can't remember i'm so bad at remembering references but um in in the new testament (laughs) there's a verse where um there's a list of like uh you know adulterers fornicators you know um uh liars and murderers you know such were some of you And, and this is this is a letter to christians in the church such were some of you and i just I like to think about that like you know every believer was one of those you know yeah. whatever it is we were all one of those but but we've been washed we've been cleansed by the blood of christ and that is such such an encouraging reality and i'm so thankful that we got to talk about that in the book as well um yeah. just talk about the gospel and how it applies to the situation of abortion so
0: I w- and yeah. I want to, I'll close on this for me and then I'll give you one chance to say whatever you want to say as we, we go out. One of the things I found that I liked the most about reading the book was that you you were both so intentional about when you were reminding us that there was a, a victim, right? In every yeah. chapter, it's like anytime, because I've written about, I wrote for Christian Research Journal, I think it was last year, an article about making abortion safer, this idea that, that this push that abortion is getting safer and safer and safer and mm-hmm. the, that you guys did such a great job in every chapter as the abortion procedure becomes safer as modern science and medical practices, as, as we get the under, more understanding of, of development, as we get antibiotics as all of these things enter in and the number of abortions go higher and the women die less You guys do a great job at not letting us forget that even though the tragedy of the loss of life of women is not as prevalent as it was in this story early on, every successful abortion ends an innocent human life. There is a victim. Mm -hmm. No matter how safe we make it, there is a victim. And that was one of the things that I genuinely appreciated that y'all were so intentional about keeping that in every single chapter.
1: Yeah. Well, good. Because that's something we we were trying to do.
0: (laughs) Great. I'm
1: glad to hear that. (laughs) Well done.
0: All right. Thank you. And did you you have anything you would like to say before you leave us on this fine day?
1: Well, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So, yeah, thank you so much for asking me about my book. And, yeah, my pleasure.
0: Absolutely. And if you ever find yourself sitting around saying, I got three things I want to run by, Jay, just send me a message and we'll get you right back on. (laughs) It was was great to have you on.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jay. I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Leah. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Human Things Podcast again. If you enjoyed the content, go to merelyhumanministries.org and you can contribute to our cause there. And we look forward to bringing more. Have a great day.